This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is the World in Time. Lead support for the World in Time podcast has been provided by Lizette Prince through the EJMP Fund for Philanthropy. Talking today with Nancy Eisenberg about her new book, White Trash, the 400-year untold history of class in America. Your telling of the 400-year-old story lays waste to a fair number of our best-loved myths. Was that your reason for writing the book? Yes. I think if, if you look at the other books that I've published, most of them involve tackling what we consider the consensus. And that can be the consensus among historians or the more general public understanding of how we think about the past. And I got interested in this topic in part because I had written a book that I co-authored, co-authored with my partner, Andrew Burstein, Madison and Jefferson, and I became deeply interested in Jefferson's language of breeding. And that was important because I realized that this is not an idea that went away. And it's ironic because Jefferson is the one who argued that the revolution, we freed ourselves from the aristocratic and elite systems that existed in old Europe. But in fact, we didn't. <laughs> we kept the language of poverty that the British used, and we built on those ideas, particularly the, the way in which the ideas of breeding worked in very nicely with what was very popular in the United States throughout the 19th century into the 20th century is the language of animal husbandry, to analogize animal and human behavior. And this became a really important language to talk about class, to the Confederate, one of the leading defenders of the Confederacy and the class system in the South, Daniel Hundley, argued that the elites, you know, were of the best blood and essentially could be compared to fine stallions. And then, of course, the, the, the whites who were on the bottom of the class system were dismissed as dregs, as the rubbish, essentially the inheritors of the same poor that had been dumped in the United States at the time of the founding of Jamestown. Talk about that. Talk about the uh, waste people that it came from England at the, at the very beginning. I mean, not only to Jamestown, but then into Massachusetts and New York and Pennsylvania. The uh, dragged from the sewers of the old world to fertilize the new. Yeah, this is a really important concept, and this was my other big theme. If one big theme was breeding and pedigree and bloodlines, the other important theme that I recovered is this idea of waste and wastelands. And what we tend to forget is that when this country was founded and well up through the 19th century, we were principally a rural society. And that meant the analogies of land were very important. And for the British, a healthy society was, was one that was based on productive soil. So therefore, their analogy for what was a dismal and failing and decrepit society was associated with wastelands. And wastelands is a term that means lands that are left fallow. It's also used to describe lands after lands that have been decimated by war. Waste itself also carries all those negative connotations that come to mind. Jefferson and Abigail Adams referred to poor rural whites as rubbish. But it also took on the negative connotations that these were the poor 
that literally, as you said, were going to fertilize the new world. And one of the key figures that I highlight is a man by the name of Richard Hacklett, who was the Elizabethan promoter of colonization. And he was the first one to use this term, waste people, to describe the expendables that were going to be dumped in the new world. In his 1584 Discourse of Western Planting, he also termed America not terra firma, but a waste firm. So this is another common theme, that people in Europe thought the entire New World, North America, was a land that was filled with wasteland, and they assumed it was unproductive. And what was their solution? Was to turn it into one giant workhouse that would be filled with all the idle dregs from English society, ex-soldiers, orphans, children of wandering beggars, criminals, debtors, and vagrants. And the really dark side, and this is what I think is so interesting about the Elizabethan period, they don't hide anything under a veil of false respect for the poor. Essentially, they're very blatant. They're saying that these people are a burden on society. We have to dump them somewhere in order to help improve the economy in Great Britain. And this idea of getting rid of the poor, expelling the poor, this is an idea that continues to be a part of the rhetoric, the political rhetoric of the United States. In fact, it informs the theories and the arguments for Western migration. It also ends up being used as a way to deal with eliminating those groups, like free blacks in the antebellum period, uh, where it was argued in, in defense of the annexation of Texas, that somehow they'd be drawn into South America, and that would help you know, improve the racial stock of the United States. And at the same time, they argued that poor whites were these nomadic people and that they would magically migrate and that would help the economy on the East Coast. So this theory doesn't disappear. In fact, it, <laughs> the idea of forcing the poor to, to move as a way of urban improvement is, is part of the rhetoric of urban renewal, the idea that these people have to be pushed somewhere else. Well, that's also the problem of the what Hillary Clinton calls the deplorables or what Romney was calling the 40% of the population who are the welfare poor takers and, and not the builders. I mean, I mean, this whole thing, I mean, what to do with the poor is, is right in the front of uh, Trump's a campaign to make America great again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and that idea, the idea of the way we look at the poor, the English assumed that if you're not a landowner, you don't have a stake in society. And we still use this today. The measure for being in the middle class is to be a homeowner. So the idea of not having a stake in society, having a vested interest, means that your contribution to the greater public good is questionable. It's assumed that if you don't produce, you know, if you don't own land, you're not going to be contributing to the larger economy and that essentially you're not a virtuous person because the English and then people like Jefferson and many others equated land ownership with a kind of civic virtue. It proved you had an investment in society. So the groups that in the United States, the terms that are used to dismiss the poor, they're referred to as vagrants rascals, which actually is a word we all know, but it comes from the word trash. As I said, rubbish, off-scourings, which is a really disturbing uh, fecal illusion, lovers, squatters, crackers, white trash, khakis, mudsills, scalawags, hillbillies, lowdowners. I mean, each generation essentially reinvented this idea of waste people. 
all the way up until we get trailer trash, which in a sense are like vagrants because a trailer is not considered a real home because it's a home on wheels. <laughs> it again is one that's disembodied from the land. So it carries that same association that the English had for their dislike of vagrants. Among the founder generation, I mean, nobody really believed that all men were created equal, right? Exactly. I mean, this is, this is the problem we have of understanding the Enlightenment. That's an abstract idea. And for someone like Jefferson, it's something that is, is an, you aspire to, something that you see as a positive good. But at the exact same time that he can write that all men are created equal, he assumes that there are certain steps that people have to go through in order to become equal. From Jefferson's point of view, you have to be a man. <laughs> there wasn't, you know, there were very few people. One of the few was Aaron Burr, who believed in, in the intellectual equality between men and women. You had to be a landowner. You had to be educated. No one assumed, and this is this is why it's important when we look at the rhetoric of the revolution that we don't confuse that with the reality, because these same people who use this high-toned rhetoric also very clearly stated who had the right to vote, who they disparaged, who they thought were dangerous to society. And these ideas can, can coexist, and that's the other problem that we have today. We do the same thing. When someone is giving a speech, they may use the, the rhetoric of American exceptionalism, that we're the land of social mobility, but then the same people will turn around and say, no, we're not. And they'll believe in building a wall to keep out immigrants, or they'll advocate for questioning people because they're unsophisticated or they're uncouth or they, in a sense, are not seen as acceptable for meeting the standards of what we associate with being a good citizen. I mean, voting in this country today is still considered a kind of privilege to be earned, whereas in countries like Australia, it's compulsory. Here, and this is why we, we've never extended the vote to everyone in the population. We've always found ways to exclude large, large portions of the population based on this assumption that we can always come up for reasons for why people do not meet that standard of what it takes to be a valuable, productive, educated citizen. In the beginning, I mean, even in Cotton Mather's church in, in Massachusetts, you had to have a certain rank, property, and I mean, your, your class uh, counted as to whether or not you were admitted to the congregation. That's one of the things I highlight, is that even in the churches at that time, where you sat determined your social status. So there was a hierarchy, a seating chart that applied to each church. So in the front of the church, you'd have the wealthier people. The church was often divided between men and women. Uh, there, in a sense, you even got perks. One of this again, fitting into this idea of breeding and and the emphasis on productivity and value as a citizen, also meant that you produced children. So in a sense, if you were a man and you had more children, you might get a better seat <laughs> in the church. So you're exactly right. You could see the whole class and social structure mapped out in the churches that were, you know, established by the Puritans and continued into the 18th century. That was also true at Yale and Harvard, where the class rank depended on the wealth of your family. 
Yeah, and if you think of it, you know, I grew up in Episcopalian, and if you think about how the Episcopalian Church, you had to buy a pew <laughs> back in yeah. the 19th century. So again, it's not as if churches were free and open spaces that were celebrating religious equality. They weren't. They were social institutions, and they very much reflected the same economic and political values that were espoused more broadly in society. So we've had a class system in this country from day one. And the you've mentioned uh, Jefferson, and you've mentioned the founding generation, and you mentioned briefly the, the, the Civil War. But what about toward the turn of the 20th century, the, the notion of eugenics that comes into the mind of people like Teddy Roosevelt? Yeah, I think eugenics is, is one of those areas of American history. It's not something that there are many historians who've studied eugenics. It's not that historians have ignored it. But we don't recognize how widespread the acceptance of eugenics was in the late 19th, 19th and early 20th century. Uh, someone like Teddy Roosevelt was a full-fledged believer in eugenics. Basically, he believed, and he was educated at Harvard, and Harvard was one of the major centers for promoting most of the racial theories that were popular among educated elites at the time. He actually believed that racial and regional traits were carried in the blood, and they were conditioned by the experience of one's ancestors. And that's why he also believed that essentially the whole Western experience is what made Americans great, because if you suck uh, all the difficulties of surviving in the West, that proved, I mean, it's sort of like a survival of the fittest theory, that proved that you were superior stock. I mean, basically, he believed that to make a nation strong, you had to sort of force it to endure difficult situations. And for men, it was warfare. That would make the next generation hardier. And for women, it was breeding. <laughs> he was very blatant about this. Um, and he reflected what was this larger eugenic mania, and it really becomes popular in the 1920s. There were fitter family contests at state fairs, where families were tested and examined, and then given medals, <laughs> like well-prized bulls. Um, there also, and this is the, the thing we have to understand about eugenics, eugenics was first widely supported in England and the United States. And Germany, the Nazi Germany, who we usually associate with, adopted later. We were the major advocates of it, so that by 1931, 27 states had sterilization laws on the books. And that basically meant that people who were identified as defectives or unfit could be sterilized. So again, you see this, and it's, it's using the same analogies that were used for animal breeding, about how do you breed the best stock. And those same ideas, even pedigree charts, the same pedigree when you had, you know, books of the sire and the pedigree of the horse. This is what the leading eugenicist, Charles Davenport, said you should keep the same kind of pedigree records uh, on individuals. And you trace their lineage, and then you can determine whether they're fit or unfit. You quote, I think, uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Supreme Court Justice. Do you remember that quote? Oliver Wendell Holmes was important because he wrote the decision in Buck v. Bell of 1927. And this is kind of the most important Supreme Court case, which decided and supported the idea of eugenics. 
basically he defended the idea that pedigree could be used to distinguish worthy citizens from waste people. And he basically said three generations of imbeciles were enough. He also, and this is what's often not quoted, that quote is, is used all the time, but he also went on to argue that sterilization was a civic duty, saving the nation from being, quote, swamped with incompetence. Now, that word swamp, again, is one of my major themes for wasteland. <laughs> it's not an accident that he used that language. He was basically echoing what the English had argued in the 1600s. He even went on to say, you know, we, we might as well sterilize them because they're not going to survive anyway. The same ideas that the English argued, that the unfit back in England are either going to starve, they're going to be executed for some crime. So sending them to be sterilized for homes was the same as what the English felt was the same purpose of colonization. So this is why this framework, this way of thinking about the poor, continues to get rewritten and play a dominant role again and again in American history. It doesn't just disappear with British colonization. Your part three of your book is called The White Trash Makeover, speaking of again and again. And so <laughs> now we have, you know, white trash is the, uh, you know, reality TV housewives of New Jersey or, <laughs> or Beverly Hills, or, or we have, you know, Bubba Clinton. How does that happen, and what does that mean? Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, sort of, I started in the 1970s. I had this idea of redneck roots. So people begin, you, you see, people begin to talk about, this is where we see the beginning of identity politics. And what begins to happen is it's sort of an inheritance from the focus on pedigree and eugenics, but it shifts it away from a genetic or deterministic language and says this is really a cultural inheritance. And you begin to see marginalized groups begin to claim their identity. You have women in the women's rights movement who begin to argue that they have the right to a voice and that they need to be heard. So it's not surprising that the same thing was done with the redneck, that the redneck is reinvented and seen in a more positive light. And this is associated with figures like Dolly Parton. And her memoir is actually really, really interesting because what she argues is that the same way she is rejecting what were middle-class standards of female beauty. The idea that the middle-class elite woman should be demure. She should still be understated. She should not be, you know, exaggerating her feminine attributes. And what did Dolly Parton do? Just the opposite. She had, you know, the large hair. She had the large breasts. And she was very much celebrating her identity as a woman, something she felt that had been denied her when she was poor and white trash uh, as a young woman. She sort of talked about looking at magazines of women, you know, magazine, magazines of beautiful, glamorous models and saying, you know, when you're, when you're white trash, you're not even seen as a woman because poor whites were seen as usually, if we go back to the 70s, they were seen as underweight. They were seen as diseased. They were seen as haggard. This goes all the way back to the 19th century. They're often described as being toothless. All the attributes that are associated with beauty were things that were denied to poor women. So she sort of goes over the top in sort of claiming that womanhood and sort of celebrating it in a way that still makes middle class people feel really uncomfortable because it's, it's also from a, an elite perspective 
it, she em- embodies all the things that we dismiss as the nouveau riche, people who are t- pretending to move up the social ladder, but lack the class and the taste and the breeding to really be part of the social elite. Into that story, how do we fit Clinton, who comes on as just a, you know, one of these poor old boys from the South and, and uh, you know, plays the saxophone, and, and, uh, and how do we fit in Trump? Part of it was how the media responded to him. On the one hand, his opposition, the Republican Party, really viewed him as white trash and called him white trash. And because they were comparing him to Ronald Reagan. And Ronald Reagan was the king, and you know Clinton was the pauper. Uh, but what's interesting is that what Clinton was doing is he was relying on a really old Southern tradition, which I talk about, where to be a Southern politician, I mean, even LBJ had to do it. You had to have a traveling band. <laughs> uh, you couldn't just go out on the road and expect votes unless you were an entertainer. So it was not, it was, it was actually Clinton by playing the saxophone. He was, he was drawing on that old Southern tradition, which is to make people feel comfortable with you by being an entertainer, by using music as a different kind of language. And at the time, people realized because Clinton was a Democrat, um, when they accused him for not being honest or being direct, one newspaper reporter made a really stupid comment. They basically said, well, he can't be honest and direct <laughs> because the South is more conservative. So he sort of was finding ways to reach those people without threatening their more traditional values. But yes, he was called, he called himself a bubba and he was called by the, the news media, the Arkansas Elvis. And the funniest thing is that Bush Sr., uh, basically hired an Elvis impersonator to, you know, to go to some of Clinton's rallies and disrupt them. And what does Clinton do? He just embraces it. So at the time of his inauguration, he has Elvis impersonators. He also has a mule, because that was also really controversial, that he had this photograph of him with a mule, which for everyone symbolized his, you know, white trash Arkansas roots. So yes, it, it became part of Clinton's election campaign, and I also argue that it became part of the way he was attacked for the Monica Lewinsky scandal, because I titled that chapter Outing Rednecks. In fact, the whole Clinton scandal, as we know, was about sex. (laughs) One of the nicknames that he'd been given before he ran was Slick Willie, and independent counsel Ken Starr, you know, claimed his final report wasn't about sex, but mentioned it 500 times. And essentially, what it was, it was clearly meant to embarrass Clinton. It was outing him on a national stage. But what it was doing from a constitutional perspective, it was sort of equating impeachable offenses with what we would associate with low-class mootness. This is what he was being put on trial for. So Clinton didn't ever quite escape that identity, even though this was what we are just, we had this one comment, which was weird in the current election. You know, at some point, in the same way Hillary Clinton was attacked for using the word deplorable, he referred to a lot of Trump supporters as rednecks, which I thought is unbelievable. How could he possibly say that? But he did. So how does Trump fit? I mean, we've got the Eastern, you know, right. tasteful media trying to out him as a sexual predator. I mean, I mean, I mean, is, is Trump white trash? No, see, what Trump is doing, Trump is, I think, falling into that tradition 
of playing a role. You know, we know he has these skills. You know, he performed for pro wrestling. He had his reality TV show. So part of what Trump did, you know, he stepped down from his luxury penthouse, put on his bubble cap, and put on a performance in which he was going to commingle with the masses. And almost everyone who was interviewed and asked, why do you like Trump? What is it that you find, you know, convincing about him as a candidate? His supporters again and again referred to how they liked his raw honesty. What made Trump appealing to people who aren't part of the liberal elite media, people who don't identify themselves as part of the professional class, was his blunt, rude, coarse, direct language. He was unscripted. And people equated that, even though he could be wrong. And it was proven over and over again, almost everything he said was inaccurate, that Hillary Clinton was not the liar. (laughs) But it didn't matter, because this is the problem with American democracy. This whole idea that our election campaigns are major entertainment events. And what people respond to is the performance. Who's the better performer? Even the liberal media. You know, Clinton was constantly chastised for not being charismatic enough, not being likable enough. Really? I mean, this is not what a democracy should be deciding. We should be deciding whether a person is competent or incompetent. And and this, you know, what Trump excelled at was putting on a show, a show that people, and even if people knew how wealthy he was, some people would say, oh, well, uh, you know, he celebrates the idea of just taking what you want and going with it. All the, the kind of ethical things that we associate with the founders, the idea of serving the public good, of being disinterested, none of those things matter. People celebrated in Trump that he was a businessman, kind of a ruthless businessman, but a man who succeeded. And that's what was appealing to him. And as most people who went to his rallies wrote about, he did talk about economic issues. His wall, as I've written before, didn't just symbolize keeping immigrants out and that fear of economic competition that comes from shifting the labor market, but it also came with a symbol. It's a symbolic wall, which meant keeping jobs, keeping corporations in this country. And one of the studies that was done that I found very convincing, argued that many of the people who supported Trump view themselves as the disinherited. They are people who define themselves as playing by the rules of the game, and they believe that media elites, Washington insiders, have you know changed the rules of the game, that they want to support immigrants, that they want to support African Americans, they want to support groups that somehow are getting a leg up over them. And this is where they felt that Trump was speaking to them and not speaking at them or down to them. So they found him to be real. But of course, as we know, he was not real. He was being a performer. Um, And the sad thing is, you know, all the people who supported him and imagined that he was going to defend their interests, as we're beginning to see, you know, he is going to defend the 1% (laughs) because that's the group that he is most aligned with. So it's fair to say, Nancy, that the that the election of 2016 turned on the divisions of race and class, and that they have been there in various forms and with some 
changes in direction since the very beginning. What What is the lesson that you would most like the readers to take away from reading your book? Yeah, this is another theme that I talk about that's so important is the intersection of race and class. I mean, I take it all the way back to the founding of Georgia. Georgia is such an interesting colony because essentially the founder, James Oglethorpe, kept slavery out of that colony. And he did it because he believed that to allow slavery and to allow large slaveholders to move into Georgia would make it impossible for a free white labor to make a living. So from the very beginning, there has been a battle, a class battle between the slaveholding elite and the non-slaveholder. And this kind of defines Southern politics. It defines rural America. And as we know, it has been exploited by politicians. Uh, we can think of, you know, Governor Orville Falvers in Little Rock of the 1950s, George Wallace of the 1960s. I talk about James Bartiman of the 1900s. All of these politicians knew that the key was to exploit that kind of competition, the racial competition and the class issues that were tied to that competition. Um, and one of the things that I do want Americans to think about, I, I think it's time that we recognize the class privilege is not the same as white privilege, that not everyone is in the same boat, that we have to recover an understanding of class on its own terms. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that we ignore race or gender. <laughs> you know, we can handle three categories of analysis to understand the complexity of our political system. But we have to understand that class power takes many forms. You know, one of the things that I like to highlight is this idea that part of the, the, the negative legacy is that from our founding, there has been a consistent rhetoric for projecting hatred toward the lower classes. I quote John Adams in 1790, who argued that Americans not only scrambled to get ahead, but they needed someone to disparage. And he wrote, there must be one indeed who is the last and lowest of the human species. And then, as you know, Lyndon Johnson came to the same conclusion in explaining the racism of poor whites. He said, if you can convince the lowest white man, he's better than the best colored man. He won't notice you're picking his pocket. Hell, give him someone to look down on and he'll empty his pockets for you. And that's what we have to understand, because this has been, it's part of the social structure, but it's also part of our politics. It, you know, exploiting these tensions, using this ideology as a way to divide Americans, and, as a, and not only divide them, but to make grand promises that politicians often make about trying to solve these problems, but in the end, they do nothing because they're not really talking about where these real problems come from and what are the real solutions that need to be done to deal with the vast portion of the population that live under the poverty line. As I like to quote, and today, you know, 41.2% of those living under the poverty line in the United States are white. So we have to come to terms with this. And we have to think of it, class isn't just about the 1% either. Our whole system is divided by class. This is a really wonderful and important book, I think, and, and I would hope that listeners to this podcast will go and find a copy of it. It's published by 
Viking. It's called White Trash, the 400-year untold history of class in America. And Nancy, it's been a pleasure and a privilege talking to you today. Thank you very, very much. Well, thanks for having me. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.